following is a paid program sponsored by Rick Edelman and is not affiliated with WLS Radio or Cumulus Media. Listeners should consult their own advisors and conduct their own research before making any purchases, investments, or making any financial decisions. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult the financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence of investing. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick is with Edelman Financial Engines, a part of Financial Engines Advisors, LLC, and the investment advisor that furnishes this program. The ranking issued by Barron's is based on assets under management, revenue, and quality of the advisor's practice, including the advisor's regulatory record. Investment returns are not considered because they're dictated by each client's risk tolerance. Like all applicants, principles of Edelman Financial Services submitted qualitative and quantitative information to Barron's which Barron's reviewed to produce the rankings for 2009, 2010, and 2012. Firms self-nominate. Investment returns and experience are not considered. Advisors in the Hall of Fame have been in the top 100 for 10-plus years. Future performance is not guaranteed. This is The Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now, here's Rick Edelman. Welcome to the program. Thanks for being here this weekend. It's a very special broadcast today. Ordinarily, we look at what's happening now and what's going to be happening in the future, which we'll be doing next week with a special show answering your questions on Bitcoin and digital assets. But today, we're going to take a look back because today is the 29th anniversary of The Rick Edelman Show. Thank you so much for welcoming me into your car and your home for all of these years. This radio show is the longest-running national program on personal finance, and here we are today, 29 years later, more than 1,500 broadcasts that I've done for you over the years. And today, we're now airing on 90 radio stations across the country with, I don't know, half a million listeners, a million listeners every week tuning in to The Rick Edelman Show. And on today's broadcast, we're going to look back on the last 29 years and show you the advice I've given and compare that to the advice that I give you today. We're going to do a recap of some of the antics at home with my wife Jean and all our dogs over the decades, and you'll hear some controversial segments as well, along with some of the unique moments that we've shared together, some of them pretty funny, some of them quite somber. We'll review my past predictions too, plus I'll give you the top 29 pieces of advice that I've offered you over the last 29 years. So thank you for joining me for this very special 29th anniversary broadcast. We've been through a lot together over the past 29 years. The early 90s recession, the Fed crushing the bond market in 1994 with six interest rate increases in a single year, the tech bubble bursting in 2000, 9-11, the credit crisis of 2008, the fiscal cliff of 2013, the extraordinary market volatility of 2015, the scary start to 2016 when the stock market had the worst first week of the year in its history, and of course, the COVID-19 pandemic that isn't over yet. Helping you through all this, figuring out what to make of it, what you should do with your investments as a result of it, that's the purpose of this program. And providing financial information and advice, well, that's why Gene and I started our financial planning firm back in the 1980s. It was just the two of us back in 1986, but today Edelman Financial Engines is one of the largest financial planning and investment management firms in the country. We're managing $260 billion for 1.3 million individuals and families coast to coast. 
And along the way, I've been named the nation's number one independent financial advisor three times by Barron's. In addition to receiving dozens of awards for my radio and television shows, my 10 books, monthly newsletter, thousands of seminars and webinars, and audios and videos. And I've been named many times by several publications as one of the industry's most prominent thought leaders. I received a Lifetime Achievement Award, too. And most important to me and this show, I've been repeatedly listed on the Heavy 100 by Talkers Magazine, named one of the nation's 100 most important radio talk show hosts. We now have more than 340 financial planners across the country, 1,500 employees in total, and all of us are dedicated to serving you. The topics I talk about on the show here each week and that I've been talking about for the last 29 years, they're the topics that are important to you and to the financial future of your family. How to make sure you're saving enough for retirement, the importance of diversification and how to do it, why you must remain invested all the time, especially during periods of crisis and panic, why listening to the media is so dangerous to your wallet, why you should be working with a fee-based fiduciary financial advisor and not some commission product-based salesperson, and how to tell the difference whether you are or not. The crisis you might be facing if you're promised a pension. The risks to Social Security. Why you need to protect yourself in the face of bad boy behavior in the financial industry. Why carrying a big, long mortgage is the right financial strategy. How to get the most in benefits from Social Security. The importance of financial literacy. How to protect yourself against elder financial abuse and identity theft. And how to protect yourself, your family, against scams. And, of course, the impact of exponential technologies on college planning, long-term care, estate planning, and, most importantly, your investment strategy. Not only do I cover all these topics on the show week to week, we do it in our webinars and seminars as well, our PBS television specials, and in my 10 books on personal finance. My path to providing financial advice and financial planning, investment management, wasn't a typical path. I didn't go to business school. My degree is in communications. I was a writer, a journalist. And soon I found myself writing in the financial trade press. That is what led Gene and me to seek out a financial planner. We wanted to buy a house, you know, like every young couple. And so we went to a financial advisor for help. He gave us horrible advice, fraudulent advice, actually. He told us to lie on our mortgage application. Made us really mad. So we decided to learn how to do this ourselves and then teach other people what we'd learned and to help them do it, too. That was the basis of our little enterprise. It was simple. We wanted to educate people about money, to create a work environment where people could feel safe and respected. We wanted to help people like us, people who didn't necessarily have a lot of money but who needed help, couldn't get that help because they weren't rich enough for all those Wall Street firms. So Gene and I started out by doing seminars on college planning, and we did them for elementary school PTA groups, parents of young children, they usually don't have a lot of money, but they sure need the help because of the incredible cost of college. Now, planning for college while the kids are young, that's routine today. But back in the 1980s, that was unheard of. Financial planning was new to most people back then. Mutual funds were still a new idea to most Americans. Back then, you probably don't remember, but back in the 80s, employers handled your retirement account. You didn't choose the investments for your 401k plan. Your boss did for you. Sounds crazy now, but that's how it used to work. And so in that environment, Gene and I went to PTA groups and we said, hey, let us teach your parents how to save for college for the kids. 
And the PTA president's always said the same thing. Why are you talking to us? Our kids are 8 and 10 years old. Go to the high school PTAs. They're the parents who care about college. And so our education began right there in those very first phone calls. We had to explain to those PTA presidents why they needed to let us talk to their members at their next meeting. you got to reach the parents while the kids are still very little. Well, over the next few years, we ended up doing seminars for pretty much every elementary school PTA in the area. And word spread about my ability to give advice in plain English, easy for people to understand and implement. And that got me invited onto the radio as a guest for a short 15-minute interview. That interview ended up lasting an entire hour. And at the end, the host, John Lyon, asked me to come back. Here's a brief clip of my second interview that I ever did on radio. As Joe Q. Public comes to see you, mm-hmm. he's got a few dollars, not a big, not a big amount of money, but something substantial that, he, that, you, that you see that, yeah, he can do something. What do you ask him? What do you want to know about this fellow when he walks in? If I come in here, what, what kind of a thing goes on? We want to do a financial diagnosis, so to speak, John, very similar to the way a physician would take care of your, uh, your medical health. We want to take uh, information based on your financial health. We want to know, for example, what your income is like, what your debt structure is, how much money do you spend every month, do you have credit card debts or outstanding loan balances and so on. We want to know how much money you have in the bank or in various investments right now. Where is your money? Um, What's it doing? Where is it performing? How much interest are you earning on it? And so on. And then finally, we want to take a look at your objectives. What is it that's worrying you? Are you concerned about taxes? Are you concerned about your own retirement, about getting the kids into college, buying a new car, a vacation home, or what have you? Are you worried about an aged parent? Um, lots of different possibilities that can be on people's minds. And once we have that all worked out, and that normally takes at least a good couple of hours, if not two or three sessions, as people are able to put the data together for us, mm-hmm. We'll then be able to map out a game plan for how to get you from where you are today to where you need to be uh, based on your objectives. So it's largely a diagnostic type of approach. Isn't that amazing? That was 1989. And what I said then is identical to how my colleagues and I here at Edelman Financial Engines serve our clients today. Has your advisor been consistent like that? Or are you constantly bombarded with the newest approach, the latest hot tip or unproven fad? often given because the last hot tip or unproven fad didn't work out. The opportunity for me to be here with you every weekend and empower you to analyze and avoid the sales pitches and the media hype, that's what I love doing best about the show. I'm often asked, what was the most memorable broadcast? Without a doubt, February 1st, 2003. I was on the air when the Columbia Space Shuttle was destroyed during its re-entry. It was a Saturday, and I was broadcasting live. And because it was a weekend, the newsroom was empty. And so the station manager called me and said, Rick, you've got to stay on the air as we go to cover this disaster. And so I ended up on the air for hours, acting as a newscaster, feeding to the network in New York and to reporters on the ground. It was such a traumatic experience for the entire nation, of course. I was scared to death because I was responsible for getting these people on the air and feeding the signals correctly. I'm just a personal finance guy. But on that day, I became a real broadcaster. You know, when you're called, you step up and you do what's necessary, even if you're uncomfortable.
And so that was one of the most memorable events for me here on the air. Another was when I was invited to broadcast my show live from Ground Zero on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. That, without question, was the most moving show I ever did. And perhaps the most impactful show came about when I got a call from a listener. We take lots of calls here on the show, as you know. And on one show, the caller was John from Manassas. I'll never forget his phone call. He called in 1996, and he said that he wanted to save money for his newborn son. I thought he meant college, but he corrected me, and he said he's worried about his baby's retirement. I realized John's a genius. I'd never considered saving for retirement for a baby, but if you think about it, the power of compounding is all about time. The more time you have, the more wealth you can create. Consider this. Save $100 a month for 20 years and earn 7% a year. You invest $24,000, you end up with $52,000. But if you save for 60 years, not just 20, look what happens. You triple your investment to 72 grand, but you end up with not 52 grand, 1.1 million dollars. Not three times as much, 20 times as much. So John was right. Let's start saving for retirement for babies. That phone call set me on a path to invent a way to do this. I ended up receiving two patents for my innovative idea, and that led to my proposal called RISE, Retirement Income Security for Everyone, which eliminates poverty and retirement for all future generations. You can learn about it at wecanrise.com. And in turn, that led to the creation of the Funding Our Future Coalition. Today, with more than 50 partners, corporations, nonprofit organizations, think tanks, academia, trade groups, our goal is to make it easier for people of all ages, even babies, to save for retirement, to be able to enjoy lifetime income in retirement, and to save Social Security. And you can learn more about the coalition at FundingOurFuture.us. One of the most memorable programs we did was during the credit crisis of 2008. Consumers around the country were petrified from the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the ensuing market meltdown. So C-SPAN came into my radio studio with their TV cameras in tow, and they broadcast my radio show as a live simulcast on C-SPAN. It was thrilling to share my advice with millions of Americans who had never heard the show before. And of course, we've done a massive amount of programming focused on the pandemic most recently. Early on, when we were first hearing about people going on ventilators, I was pretty sure that few people understood what that really meant or what the estate planning implications were. So I invited Dr. Albert Holt, the medical director of critical care services at Inova Hospital in Fairfax, Virginia, to join me on the program. Here's a clip of that interview that we aired last March. We hear the phrase, go on a ventilator. What does it mean for someone to go on a ventilator? So when we talk about mechanical ventilation, we're really talking about a form of life support for patients. And so this is life support for their lungs, essentially, to kind of make it as simple as possible. It's when the lungs are no longer able to get enough oxygen or provide enough ventilation to remove the carbon dioxide. In these cases that we see most currently, it's really around challenges with oxygenation because the lungs don't become as functional as they would normally be. So they get boggy, they get infected, they get swollen. So if you think about a sponge, 
um, and all of those pockets to a sponge being air pockets, and then all of a sudden you get an infection, and then that infection basically makes them very heavy sponges and no longer able to oxygenate the body as well. You need to provide a higher level of oxygen um, to those lungs than would normally be the case, and you use techniques in mechanical ventilation that enable you to kind of open up those pockets to then help them to get that oxygen better. If you get to the point where you need mechanical ventilation because you're not able to oxygenate as well as you uh, need to to provide oxygen to the brain and to the rest of the organs of the body, then you're in a situation where um, you're more likely to not survive. Most people say, well, I don't want to be kept alive with machines, right? I mean, that's usually what, what people will routinely say. They want to have everything done, but they don't want to be kept alive with machines. And so it becomes a, uh, a, an interesting conversation because a lot of it is what would that, given the patient's condition, what they're able to do before they ended up needing life support, what would that person's decision be if they were making the decision themselves? And this is kind of where the um, advanced directives sometimes get in very tricky um, because essentially when you're on a ventilator, you're generally not able to make your own decisions. You're sedated, you're on medications. It's not necessarily in a situation where the, the, we would go to the patient on the ventilator to say, do you want to have this? Do you want to not have this? And so frequently families rely on that advanced directive. And so that advanced directive is, is usually pretty limited in terms of what people are able to do and say, okay, well, if I'm going to be kept on life support, I don't really want to do that. Some people set up time frames. Other people say that they don't want to have anything done. They don't want to be subject to a ventilator. They don't want to be intubated. They don't want to have CPR done. And those are all reasonable based upon whatever conditions they uh, come into the situation with and whatever their quality of life is going to be. A lot of that has to come from the conversations that's had with whoever is the substituted judgment person who is, whose role it is to make the decisions for that family member or friend based upon what that person who's now intubated on a mechanical ventilator would choose to do themselves. And that's where sometimes we find it gets really tricky because people sometimes will apply their own moral judgment on what they want to do for them versus what that person who may be incapacitated to make those decisions to do. But how often do you encounter patients who have not provided those documents? They have not signed them in advance. So that happens too often than I would like. And really, part of what's needed is not just to have the document signed, but to really have conversations with the people that are going to be making those decisions in terms of things that they would not would not choose to do. If you could give one piece of advice to our listeners regarding this conversation, what would that be? Really be to consider and have conversations with uh, family members around what your wishes are in terms of care and what you would and would not want to have happen to you um, and what kind of quality of life uh, is consistent with your values. The, the conversation to have with families around this and choosing the person that you want to be the decider um, is going to be vitally important for people. And those are the conversations that we as the clinicians have the, the best outcomes when it comes to making sure that we're comfortable doing exactly what a patient would have chosen in the circumstance that they were sitting there talking to us when we present them with whatever the decisions are in terms of care. That was Dr. Albert Holt, the Medical Director of Critical Care Services at Inova Hospital. You know, over the years I've done lots of unusual broadcasts. I once did a four-hour radio show from a phone booth. <laughs> yeah, long before the days of cell phones and back when my show was four hours long, I was at a financial planning conference and I had to do the show. The only way was standing in a phone booth for four hours. 
I also did a broadcast from the Chicago Auto Show one year. That was a ton of fun. And I also broadcast the show once from Tom Woods' bedroom. Tom is one of the financial advisors here at Edelman Financial Engines. Gene and I were vacationing with Tom and his wife, Joy, and I needed a quiet place in his house to do the show. And his bedroom was it. So there I was, broadcasting the show from Tom's bedroom. And no, I will not tell you where I was in the room or how I was dressed or where Gene and Joy and Tom were. We'll just move on. One of the most interesting phone calls I got was from a guy named Ben. He's in the U.S. Army and he was calling me for financial advice. Nothing unusual about that. I get lots of calls from members of the military, God bless them all. But Ben, he was calling from Iraq. He was in the middle of a war zone, and he was worried what to do with his hazard pay. That was one of the most astonishing phone calls I ever had. I remember a fascinating conversation on the air with Cindy Crawford. She was doing something on Capitol Hill. I don't remember what, but it was a big to-do about it, and so they arranged an interview with me and her so she could talk about whatever it is she was talking about. She is such a consummate professional. She was like, hey, Rick, how are you doing? It sounded like we'd gone to high school together. And sure enough, after the broadcast, friends of mine were like, wow, you really know Cindy Crawford? I was like, well, well, yeah, of course I do. Uh, No, not really. Once I was doing the show from the broadcast studios in New York City, I'm in the middle of a broadcast. The on-air light is on. I'm talking on the air. And who walks into the studio? Larry Kudlow. And he goes, hey, Rick, mind if I smoke? I'm like, Larry, I'm doing a show. (laughs) I've got a lot of fun moments with listeners on the air and even on my voicemail. Not everyone, though, is a fan of the show. Here's one woman who called me one day. I'm a psychologist. And to listen to this maniac on the radio, Rick Edelson, is bizarre. He goes on and on for 20 minutes about a postman who is upset him because the postman asked for a tip. So he goes rants and raves like a maniac. He's still ranting. You can hear him. This man needs psychiatric help. He is absolutely the most narcissistic, ranting individual we have ever listened to. There are four of us here. Two of us are lawyers. And we wouldn't go with him if our life depended on it. I am absolutely outraged at his unprofessionalism and his crazy ranting. Get him some help and shame on him. My God, poor man. I'm ranting. And that wasn't enough. She called back. We think that Rick Edelman is off the wall. Sociopathic, raving maniac, needs some help with a psychiatrist or psychologist to manage his anger. He yells and screams. He's really unbelievably immature. He really needs help. This crazy maniac person (laughs) on the radio... So, okay, not everybody's a fan of the show. You know who else is not a fan of the show? Susie Orman. Get Rick Edelman, who was on Business Center the other night, say whatever he said and get him here, too, and I'll smack his little face. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So that was Susie Orman ranting about me on CNBC. I don't remember what I said on the air, but obviously she didn't like it. And I'll smack his little face. Oh, boy. Just listen to the stuff that comes out of her mouth. Listen to what she said in a TV interview. I am a personal finance expert. In fact, I'm the personal finance expert for the entire world. And try this one. Is there anything you don't know? 
When it comes to money, no. There is nothing that I do not know. That I'm sure about. And I'll smack his Wait, little face. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, Susie Orman, big deal author, talk show host. But hey, I, not Susie Orman, am the most powerful person in America, and I'm going to prove it to you. I've proved it many times on this radio show, and I'm going to prove it again. And I hasten to add, this is going to annoy a lot of people because it always does. You see, I have the ability, unique in this country, for making every dog in America bark. Don't believe me? Go get your dog. Ready? Here goes. That's it. Every dog in this country is now simultaneously barking. That's exactly right. Every dog within earshot of this program is barking. And frankly, it's perfect evidence that dogs are really incredibly stupid because your doorbell doesn't even sound like that. And yet, there they go. They're often running to the front door because they're hearing this sound. The amazing thing is that every time I play this bit, I get nasty phone calls. I had one lady call me one day. She was so mad at me because her dog wouldn't shut up for a half hour because I kept ringing the doorbell. Ain't radio great? Hey, go host your own radio show. You get to do all kinds of fun stuff. You know, it really wasn't my intent to write 10 books. In fact, I never planned to write any books. But listeners to the show started asking me what book could they read to learn more. And I didn't like any of the books on the market. I couldn't endorse any of them or recommend them in good conscience. So I said, okay, I don't have a choice. I've got to go write one of my own. And so I wrote The Truth About Money. It was based on a course I was teaching at Georgetown University. I was on the faculty there for nine years. It took me three and a half years to write my book, The Truth About Money. Georgetown University published it, and it ended up winning the Book of the Year Award from the Institute for Financial Literacy, plus a Gold Medal Axiom Award and an Apex Award. And it was named Book of the Year by Small Press Magazine as well. The Truth About Money debuted at number one on the Washington Post bestseller list, stayed number one for 22 weeks, and stayed on the bestseller list overall for 70 weeks in total. I wrote nine more books, including a children's book with my wife Jean called The Squirrel Manifesto. My book, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Wealth, hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and The Lies About Money was also named Book of the Year by the Institute for Financial Literacy. It also won an Axiom Award. In addition to teaching at Georgetown University for nine years, I've also lectured at Roger Williams University, George Washington University, Stanford, and Pepperdine. I'm now distinguished lecturer at Rowan University. Rowan gave me an honorary doctorate in 1999, and I graduated from the executive program at Singularity University in 2012, and I also hold six professional designations. I mention all of this because it's important that you know who the people are that you're listening to. You need to know their background and their experience. Is the person who's telling you what to do someone you should be listening to? And I'll smack his Wait, little face. Oh, boy. We've done a lot of really great bits over the years. Here's one of my favorites, Lady Gaga explaining her reaction to having to pay taxes. It might not seem like a big deal because, you know, I'm like a pop singer or whatever. It's like it still like hurts to write a check when you didn't like it. We were laughing. Everybody was laughing because when I signed my tax returns this year, I had to get completely wasted. <laughs> I was just like, they, were just, they were just holding me up. Like, I just, was, I just couldn't even. It's unbelievable. Everybody has to pay taxes. Even businessmen that rob and steal and cheat from people every day, even they have to pay taxes. 
speaking of which, do you think uh, that you could uh, give me my 20000 in cash? Uh, my concern is that this might bump me up into a higher tax uh, brand. Let the bears pay the bear tax. I pay the homer tax. When I signed my tax returns this year, I had to get completely wasted. All right, so that was one of the funnier bits, but some of the interviews were anything but funny. One of the most powerful interviews we ever provided here on the program was with Mickey Rooney. He was testifying before Congress on elder financial abuse. Mickey Rooney, of course, one of the most admired and beloved actors of all time. He was going back from when he was a child actor all the way through more recently and what happened to him as he entered his elder years. Here is what he told Congress. I was unable to avoid becoming a victim of elder abuse. Elder abuse comes in many, many different forms. Physical abuse, emotional abuse, and financial abuse. You feel scared, disappointed, and you can't believe that it's happening to you. You feel, you feel overwhelmed. When I asked for information, I was told that I I couldn't have any information of my own. I did. What the hell were you talking about? I was told it was none of my business. When you're told that, you're left to leave powerless. And if it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. Even when I tried to speak up, I was told to shut up and be quiet. You don't know what you're talking about. It seemed that no one, no one wanted to believe me. I know who I'm talking about. And I'm, I'm not speaking just for myself. What I hoped to be, what I was, was taken from me. I'm asking you to stop this of elderly abuse. I mean to stop it. So I brought that to the attention of my audience because we've got clients who have parents who are older. Many of us are living thousands of miles from our parents, and we need to make sure that they're well taken care of. So that was a really powerful segment. I also interviewed Richard Cordray, the first director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It's not just scammers hurting people. I've also expressed indignation many times over the media and their irresponsible behavior of scaring people needlessly. Remember Hurricane Irene in the summer of 2011? According to the media, this was going to be the most devastating hurricane since Hurricane Andrew. And what ended up happening with Hurricane Irene? Nothing. But here's what the media said. Hurricane Irene now bearing down on the Carolinas. Bracing for Irene, the East Coast on high alert this morning. Tonight, Hurricane Irene is about to launch an assault on the East Coast of the United States. Taking dead aim at some of America's biggest cities. The monster Category 2 storm is expected to roar ashore for what could turn out to be the worst storm to hit the area in decades. And so it turned out to be nothing. The media just built up this hype. They scared people relentlessly. I talked about it on the show because the media does that with the stock market, too. Here's what they said during the 2008 credit crisis. No, we have Armageddon. We, get, we have Armageddon. In the fixed income markets, we have Armageddon. Good U.S. Treasury bonds soon rate as junk bonds. 
This story can only end one of three ways. Another Great Depression, like 1929. Economic stagflation, like 1979. Or a Soviet-style collapse, like 1989. Susie, how bad is this? Is this comparable to the Great Depression? Yes, sir. This is Really? This is seriously bad. And you all remember what the headlines were at the start of the pandemic a year ago. But look where we are today. The stock market's at an all-time high. I'm not saying past performance guarantees future results or that you won't ever experience volatility, but dealing with panics and crisis? Common for this show. You need to remember that just because the media is saying it doesn't mean it's true. The media's goal, after all, is to get you to watch, listen, read, download. That's all they want you to do. They're trying to attract eyeballs, viewers, listeners, readers, because that's how they make a living. Selling subscriptions, recruiting advertisers. They can't get advertisers if there isn't an audience, and they're therefore not financial experts. They're not trying to help you with your personal needs and circumstances. They're trying to get you to pay attention to them so they can earn a profit selling subscriptions and selling advertising. And so we need to recognize that we're just trying to bring you these kinds of illustrations to your attention to help you understand this so you can put it all into proper context for your best interest. So let me tell you how to deal with the media. There are a couple of ways you can handle this. I mean, we've all heard about the nonsense of fake news. Boy, that's a word or phrase we never had to deal with 29 years ago, but it's pervasive now. So you've got the issue of trying to figure out what's real and what's fake. But it even goes beyond that. It's really much more fundamental. What is useful and what isn't. And here's how to figure that out. Because as you're listening to the media, I mean, I think it's pretty clear when you're dealing with fake news. I mean, when you're looking at major traditional established sources of the media, that's entirely different from some blind email you receive from a source you have no idea who they are, what their credentials are, claims that are unverifiable. That's one thing. But when you're dealing with, say, CNBC or the New York Times or Fox News, how do you know if that information that you're getting is worthwhile? It's real simple. You want to simply separate information from noise. I'll give you an idea of what noise is. A prediction is noise. Anybody who tries to tell you what interest rates are going to do tomorrow, well, that's just noise. Nobody knows what interest rates are going to do tomorrow. And in fact, the guy who you hear making the prediction, well, he's made a lot of predictions in the past. What has he told you before? How did the most prior predictions turn out? Isn't it fascinating when they parade these pundits across TV all the time? They always ask them, what do you think is going on? What do you think is going to happen as a result of X? They never bother to say, well, here's what happened after you made the last prediction, the last time you were a guest on the show. They never do that. It's all just noise. So anytime you have somebody telling you what's going to happen next, just turn it off. Ignore it. I don't mean you literally have to turn off the station or throw away the magazine subscription. That's not what I mean. What I mean is you simply ignore what they're saying. Don't act on it. But if the information is different, if it's like, here's what happens to bond prices when interest rates rise, that's different. That's information because that's not a prediction of what interest rates are going to do. It's education about how interest rates work relative to bond prices. So look for education. Look for information. That's very different from predictions and noise and bluster that's just designed to get you scared or make you feel greedy. Does that that make sense? One of my all-time favorite bits 
was a result of the SEC's investigation into insider trading on Wall Street. There are a lot of bad boys on Wall Street, but this one was particularly unusual. Here's the press conference from the SEC. We are charging nine defendants in an insider trading ring that included lawyers, professional traders, and hedge fund managers in a $20 million scheme. Arthur Cotillo, through his friend and fellow attorney Jason Goldfarb, tipped the inside information to a Wall Street trader named Zvi Goffer, who was referred to as Octopussy. Goffer then promptly tipped the other traders we charged today. He gave one of his tippies a disposable cell phone that had two programmed phone numbers in them, you and me. After the insider trading was complete, Goffer destroyed the disposable cell phone by removing the SIM card, biting it, and breaking the phone in two. He threw away half the phone and gave the other half to his tippee to throw away. Needless to say, these antics might be appropriate in a James Bond movie. They have no place among Wall Street professionals or those who participate in our capital markets. You know, the thing that I really didn't understand about that whole escapade was the phone. The guy handed it to him and said there were two phone numbers, you and me. Well, which one is you and which one is me? I mean, do I hand it to you and does that mean you call me or do you call you? No wonder they got caught. And then there's the case of Dawn Bennett in 2019. She was a financial advisor who also hosted a local radio show. And here's the bit I did about her. Well, I told you a couple of weeks ago that Dawn Bennett, who was a financial advisor who hosted a radio show, she was sentenced to 20 years in prison for committing a Ponzi scheme. Well, now her associate, Bradley Masco of Frederick, Maryland, he was just sentenced to 30 months in federal prison, followed by three years of supervised release for helping Dodd Bennett defraud her clients of that 20 million bucks. He was also ordered to repay 5 million in restitution. He was Dawn Bennett's CFO. And what we have to simply recognize is that, uh, yeah, this is just like really totally inappropriate and uh, despicable. As the chief financial officer for Don Bennett, he assisted her in ripping off consumers to the tune of 20 million bucks. Masco admitted uh, that he lied under oath and that he made false statements to the SEC all under Don Bennett's direction and at her assistance. And so uh, the crazy part of the story, as you may recall, is that Dawn Bennett not only ripped off uh, all these people and she was being investigated by the SEC and the FBI, she uh, was raided by the FBI. And when they went through her house and they went into her refrigerator, they discovered... Yeah, they discovered a bunch of hoodoo potions and incantations that Dawn Bennett was using in a desperate effort to get the regulators off her trail. And uh, I don't really think it actually worked, but uh, she gave it a shot. 
And so it's really rather uh, rather sad that we saw the whole thing. But unfortunately, unfortunately, the victims are not likely to see any of their money. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult the financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence of investing. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick is with Edelman Financial Engines, a part of Financial Engines Advisors, LLC, and the investment advisor that furnishes this program. The ranking issued by Barron's is based on assets under management, revenue, and quality of the advisor's practice, including the advisor's regulatory record. Investment returns are not considered because they're dictated by each client's risk tolerance. Like all applicants, principles of Edelman Financial Services submitted qualitative and quantitative information to Barron's which Barron's reviewed to produce the rankings for 2009, 2010, and 2012. Firms self-nominate. Investment returns and experience are not considered. Advisors in the Hall of Fame have been in the top 100 for 10-plus years. Future performance is not guaranteed. This is The Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now, here's Rick Edelman. Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. Thanks for hanging around this half hour for this very special 29th anniversary broadcast. Next week on the program, we'll be delivering for you information about Bitcoin and digital assets. If you have questions about any of that, send them to me to askrick at rickedelman.com. Hey, speaking of digital assets, that's all possible thanks to Exponential Technologies. It's the basis of my last book, The Truth About Your Future, and explains all about robotics, AI, big data, nanotech, biotech, bioinformatics, 3D printing, augmented and virtual reality, fintech, edtech, and of course, blockchain and Bitcoin and digital assets. And I've had lots of guests talking about these new technologies, but the best interview I did on this was just a few months ago when I interviewed internet sensation Katie Feeney, just 18 years old. Here's a clip from that interview. Katie, you're 18 years old. You're in high school, yes? Yes. And you have a side gig. Yes. I post various short-form content videos, and I also go live on Amazon and TikTok and Instagram basically to sell products, and I've been able to earn money from it. When you say you've been able to earn money from it, has the amount of money you've been earning, has that been published by anybody? Yes, I actually earned over a million dollars, which is so crazy to even say out loud. You earned a million dollars in what period of time? Two months, from November to January 1st. And you're still earning income as each week goes by? That is correct. You're basically creating a video of yourself opening up a product. You open up the box, you talk about the product, you give it a review. How many people watch you do this? Through my social media platforms, I probably receive about 150 million monthly views. Equal to about half the U.S. population. Yeah, when you put it like that, that is just so crazy to even think about. Yeah, I guess so. So how many hours a day are you spending on your business activities online? Probably about three to four hours a day. And so how many videos are you typically posting on a day? Two to three videos a day. And how long is each one? The video itself probably takes me an hour or two to film and edit. And the video um, ends up being about 30 to 45 seconds. Is there anybody helping you in the production? It's pretty much just me. And so at this pace, are you expecting that your annual income is going to be in the neighborhood of $6 million? I'm not entirely sure yet. Has it changed your views of what your college major is going to be? 
So I'm definitely majoring in business and also marketing, depending on which school I go to and what they offer as a major. If I get into my in-state school, that would be me saving $50,000 a year and ultimately $200,000 over the four years. That's Katie Feeney, 18 years old and an Internet sensation. And remember, in 2018, uh, no, of course you don't. It was 2018. Nothing pre-COVID matters anymore. Anyway, 2018, the Fed raised interest rates three times in one year. So when it came time to report on it, I didn't bring an economist onto the air to explain to us what was happening. I brought you Britney Spears. Down and up and 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 down and up. Yeah, that pretty much explains it. And I think everybody can relate to that. It's not just the music, of course, that we bring to the program. Several times onto the show, I've brought the Percolators onto the air. That's my brother's band. No, don't worry. I'm going to spare you from having to listen to him again. I also brought onto the show Rich Maydow. Rich has been listening to my show for a couple of decades, and he felt that my show always had a big problem. I didn't have a theme song. So Rich wrote me one, and here's a clip from it. about money well it's not a mystery the truth about money hasn't changed much throughout history if he had spent more than he earned while he was fiddling even Nero would have gotten burned if you've got something to invest and you want to do your best this should be your battle cry Always buy low and sell high And if things get out of balance Then it's time to use your talents It's not enough to sell it high You gotta rebalance and diversify Here's something you maybe haven't heard Market timing is absurd so always read the big disclaimer And don't take stock tips from Jim Cramer The truth about money, well, it's not a mystery The truth about money hasn't changed much throughout history Even in the market crash The ones who did the best were not the ones who turned it all to cash TechExplosion.com boom, real estate doom and gloom even though the market's manic, stay the course and never panic. The truth about money, well, it's not a mystery. The truth about money hasn't changed much throughout history. You don't have to be a buy and sell man. Take a tip from me and listen to the wisdom of Bryce Delman. Actually, his name is Rick Elliman and Associates. And now you know the truth about money, the truth about M-O-N-E-Y, the truth about money. Many thanks to Rich Maydow for doing that for us. He also made a video. Yep, he recorded a music video of him performing his song. You can watch that video on our website. Just go to rickedelman.com for the video. A lot of controversies have also occurred over the past 29 years that I've been on the air, and sometimes I was involved in them. Remember the Beardstown ladies? Remember them? That was in the 1990s, a group of little old ladies from Beardstown, Illinois. 
They were known for baking cookies. They decided to start an investment club. They wrote a book about how they produced an average annual return over a 10-year period of 23.4% per year. You must be joking. That was amazing. The S&P 500 during the same period was only 14.7%. They produced 234 they got invited onto TV shows. They wrote a best-selling book. And then one after another and one after another, all saying it's so easy to make 23.4% per year. We did it, they said. You can do it, too. But then it was revealed that they lied. They cheated in their performance data. They looked at their starting balance. They compared it to their ending balance 10 years later. Poof, 23.4% a year. But what they did was they included in their calculation the money they added to their account during the year. So the gain wasn't due to the market. It was the result of them adding their own money to their investments. When you did the math correctly, they didn't earn 23% a year. Their return was only 9.1. Oh, come on! Yeah, the S&P was up 14.7. They only did 9.1. Okay, I get it. Bunch of little old ladies. They're new to the world of investing. They didn't know how to calculate returns properly. They lied and they cheated, but not on purpose. It was an innocent mistake. Fine. Okay. I get it. But when the truth came out, instead of pulling their books from the marketplace, they kept on selling them. They merely inserted a piece of paper saying, quote, we are distressed that there were inaccuracies. They kept on selling the books, even though all the advice they gave in the books produced, in fact, below average returns. The cover of their books still said 23.4% return. They had time to write a note and insert it, but they refused to fix the cover. So I blasted them on my show for deliberately misleading consumers in order to keep earning book royalties. And guess what? Listeners called me complaining. Not at them, but at me for being mean to these sweet little old ladies. Give me a break. That wasn't the only time I ended up going against a mighty wrong. There was a big scam involving Georgetown University. Remember, I was a member of the faculty there for nine years, and Georgetown University Press published my first book, The Truth About Money, which became a runaway national bestseller named Book of the Year. USA Today called it one of the best books of the year, and so you can imagine I had a really good relationship with the university. But then a controversy started. Federal regulators shut down a pump-and-dump trading scheme, and it turns out that the perpetrators of the scheme were two students of the university's law school, and the university failed to expel them. Instead, they were permitted to graduate and become lawyers. I was aghast. I tried to convince the university to expel them, but they didn't. And so, in protest, I resigned from the faculty. And along the way, I gave the university a bit of a PR problem. I've been telling you about controversies that I've created over the years, and here's the one that got me branded as unconventional, something I said in the very early days of this radio show. Ever since I've been doing the show, 29 years now, I've been telling you to get a big, long mortgage and never pay it off. A big 30-year loan, not a 15-year loan. And don't make extra monthly payments and don't sign up for a biweekly mortgage plan. This advice was heresy when I started saying it because the routine advice in the industry was to pay off your mortgage, own your home outright, the American dream. But I came up with 11 great reasons for you to carry a big, long mortgage. And without a doubt, it's the most controversial advice I've ever given. When I started, there hadn't been any academic studies done on the subject, at least none I'd have been able to find, and I wouldn't shut up about it. 
So eventually, academic studies did emerge, and every one of them, at least every one I've ever seen, has supported my position. Carrying a big, long mortgage is the smarter, safer approach for your personal finances. I was called controversial and unconventional, but you know that my advice is filled with just plain old common sense. Practical, attainable, easy to do, easy to keep doing. And that's what I'm dedicated to providing you here on The Rick Edelman Show every weekend, just like we've been doing for you for the past 29 years. And you know I've got a reputation for being rather blunt. Is that fair to say? You know that if I think someone's acting pretty dumb, I say so. Are you some kind of moron? You're a moron. Bungly moron. Moron. You moron. Stupid moron. We got a moron here, is that it? If I think they're making a mistake, I say so. What you have done is wrong. And if they don't want to listen to what I'm telling them, you can't handle the truth. And sometimes I just warn them how they're going to feel. You'll be sorry. And sometimes, flat out, people don't want to rely on facts. They want to rely on myth. And sometimes people are just setting themselves up to fail. And sometimes they're doing stuff where I'm not even sure I understand what they're doing. And so I simply say something that, frankly, doesn't make any sense. Your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. I've never understood what that meant. We all remember it, right, from Top Gun with Tom Cruise. I've never understood that line, but it's really insulting, and so it's a really good one. And there's a clip I use every September. I, I know, it's only May, but you'll hear me say this in just a few months. Well, that's great. That's just great. I thought all the nuts went home after Labor Day. I can only use that clip once a year. So, uh, but yeah, you know, sometimes uh, people get a little annoyed with how blunt I am, especially when I tell them they're dead wrong. Way wrong answer! But my biggest controversy is when I took on the entire retail mutual fund industry. This was back in 2007. My first book was called The Truth About Money, but this new book was called The Lies About Money because it laid out 25 deceptive business practices engaged in routinely by the mutual fund industry. Frequent manager changes, manager moonlighting, high turnover, style drift and bracket creep, excessive cash and margin, window dressing, misleading fund names, cosmetic name changes, closet indexing, funds that close and then reopen, fund bloating, cloning, survivorship bias, creation bias, fund seeding, confusing share classes, hidden fees, stale pricing, rising costs, no discounts for larger investors, illegal market timing and late trading, personal trading by portfolio managers, steering business, and shelf space payments. Yeah, count them all. 25 deceptive business practices all told. Some of them not just unethical and unfair, as if that's not bad enough. Some of them are outright illegal. The fund industry didn't like the book. But you did. You made my book a bestseller. And the financial literacy movement liked it, too. The Institute for Financial Literacy named The Lies About Money the book of the year in 2007. That book helped grow the entire ETF industry. Fifteen years ago, you probably never heard of exchange-traded funds. But today, you might actually own them. Maybe because of my book, The Lies About Money. But even so, today, there are still trillions of dollars invested in retail mutual funds. And so I continue to spread the word to help people understand the abuses that occur even today in many retail mutual funds. And the silliest controversy that I ever had to deal with over the years is the one that says Congress is going to steal your 401k. It was a ridiculous rumor, but it was actually scaring a lot of people to the point that I had to bring onto the air Phyllis Borzi, the Assistant Secretary of the Department of Labor, so she could say clearly and bluntly, no, the government is not going to do that. 
Phyllis and I became friends, and she's now on the board of Edelman Financial Engines. And yet even today, we still get phone calls and emails from people saying, I heard the government's going to steal my 401k. People, please. Speaking of Washington and politics, I've testified before Congress three times. I've served at an SEC roundtable. I was also appointed as a delegate to all three national summits on retirement savings, first by Bill Clinton and then by George W. Bush, a Democrat and a Republican. I've given presentations to the Federal Reserve, Freddie Mac, the IRS, the FBI, the Congressional Black Caucus, a dozen military bases, and hundreds of other organizations. Along the way, I've appeared on Oprah five times. And here's one of the clips from one of those appearances on the Oprah Winfrey Show. I know what it's like to be making 12 and think if I only made 100, mm -hmm. all my problems would be solved. What you do is you just carry the debt with you if you're the kind of, isn't that true? What you Rick? do is you increase your lifestyle, you commensurate your lifestyle. with the income. So you're just as broke at 50 grand as you were at 20. Absolutely. But you can do more damage at 50 than you could at 20. You know why? I call it the towel theory because every for every increment I made, I just would get better towels. You start out. <laughs> That's right. You start out, you're very happy to get your tiles from Target, and then you move on up, and then the next thing you know, you can only buy your tiles from Saks, and every, you know, like your, 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 right. your debt just increases. Your People debt. tend to do that with cars, not tiles. I'll tell you one thing I never predicted, that I would ever one day find myself on the set with Oprah Winfrey. What a thrill that was each of the times I appeared. Hey, speaking of predictions, let's talk about those. I've made a bunch of predictions over the years. Back in 1992 was my first prediction here uh, on the show. The Dow Jones Industrial Average at the time was about 3,000. That's hard to remember, right? Because today it's like 34,000. But in 1992, the Dow was 3,000. Daily trading volume on the New York Stock Exchange, that's the number of shares bought and sold during the day, about 200 million shares. And I said way back then, that by the year 2000, eight years away, the Dow would be over 10,000. Remember, it was only 3,000 at the time, so I was saying it was going to triple, and that we would see a billion share trading day. We were only doing one-fifth as much, and I was right on both predictions. By 2000, the Dow had hit 11,500, and trading exceeded a billion shares. I also predicted in 2008 that the Dow one day would close the day unchanged, 0, 0.00 change in price. What's the significance of that? Well, real simple. We all know that the Dow ends the day either higher or lower than the day before. That's investors basically saying, we think things are going to get better or we think things are going to get worse. But a Dow unchanged, that's the investor community basically saying, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what's going to happen next. So we're going to kind of just sit here at this stop sign, not knowing whether to turn left or right. Well, I said that would happen one day, that the Dow would actually close unchanged. Investor sentiment would be simply uncertain. Nobody believed me. Everybody knows the markets always close either higher or lower than the day before, but I said it would happen. And my prediction, well, it almost came true several times. Missed it by that much. And then it looked like I was never going to be right, that I would be wrong about this prediction. But then on Thursday, April 24th, 2014, I was proved correct. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed unchanged 0.00. .00. This is Les Nitzman saying good day, and may the good news be yours. What about my current predictions? I'll have them for you next as we continue our 29th anniversary broadcast special celebration. I have two current predictions. Here they are. By 2030, 
mutual funds will be gone, and we're on the way. It sounds crazy, but we are moving toward it. Last year, investors withdrew billions of dollars from stock mutual funds, and they added billions of dollars to exchange-traded funds. Investors are clearly showing their preference, which, by the way, is my preference. And what are you waiting for, by the way? Oh, and in 2013, I said the Dow Jones Industrial Average would hit 50,000 by 2030, by the end of this decade. The Dow was 13,000 at the time, so I was saying that the Dow would quadruple over a 17-year period. I still stand by that prediction. In fact, I now believe that the Dow will be not 50,000 by 2030, it'll be 80,000. Does that sound outrageous? It's not. An 80,000 Dow between now and 2030, that would only be a 10% annual return. The Dow's been doing that on average since 1926, according to Ibbotson Associates. If we only get an 8% Dow, it'll be 68,000 by 2030. So the Dow now, 34,000. I'm predicting it'll be 50, 60, 70, 80,000 by the end of the decade. When we get there, when we get to 2030, you're going to say one of two things to your kids and grandkids. You're either going to tell them that you invested back in 2021 or that you could have. You might be wondering, how can I make predictions like this? Well, you're missing the point. I'm not really making any predictions at all. All I'm doing is extrapolating the historic return of the stock market, 10% a year since 1926 on average, and projecting it into the future. If the market does in the future the same thing that it's done over the last 100 years or so, well, that's where I'm coming from. So I'm not really making a prediction at all. I'm just saying that if what happens in the future is representative of what happened in the past, here's what you can expect to have happen, whether we get a 10% return or an 8% return or whatever. Of course, I'm not making predictions about the future because past performance doesn't guarantee future results. And you can never assume that you're never going to experience volatility or losses along the way. You get all that kind of good stuff, right? So this is why it's pretty safe for me to say this, because I'm not making a prediction. I'm just saying, hey, do you think the markets will do over the next 15 or 20 years similar to what they've done over the past 90? Get it? Got it? Good. Sometimes I don't offer predictions. Instead, I ask for your help. On an early show, I remember announcing on the air that a mouse had gotten into our car. I was really befuddled. So I came on the air and I asked you, how does a mouse get in your car? So I got a lot of folks calling me on the air, explaining to me, that they're just the mouse just trying to stay warm, the radiator's warm, and so they go in there during the winter. Okay, I get it. But next week, I went back on the air, and I said we were finding mouse droppings all over the car. It was starting to eat away at the electrical system and the radio knobs. And I said, look, I asked the wrong question last week. It's not, how does a mouse get into your car? The real question is, how do you get a mouse out of your car? <laughs> There's a financial planning point to all of this. How you got into your mess is not nearly as important as what you're going to do to get out of it. Focus on the future, okay? Let go of the past. It's just holding you back. We've also had lots of dog antics over the years, as I've related to you. One of our dogs once ate my bank deposit. She grabbed it right off my desk, destroyed the checks that I was going to deposit. Liza, on Thanksgiving, she grabbed the turkey off the table with about 20 people over for the holiday. Vicky chased an animal at night, turned out to be a skunk. That was a smelly mistake. And Summer went outside for about a half hour, and when she came back into the house, she had a $100 bill in her mouth. Don't ask me how that happened. I have no idea. I've also shared a lot of stories with you involving my wife, Jean. Once she backed out of the garage without first opening the garage door. Another time, and by the way, she's blaming the dogs for these, she backed out of the garage without closing her car door. 
no damage to the house that time, just to the, her car. But I learned something really serious about Jean uh, uh, during the November elections, not this past November, but the election of 2016 when Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton. I was shocked at what I learned about my wife, Jean. Here's the clip from the show, the weekend following Donald Trump's election. There was a shocker this week, something that I, I mean, I, a lot of Americans were shocked, but quite frankly, I had the shock of my life. I discovered something about my wife that I did not know. And it took the election for me to discover this about Jean. We've been married for 33 years. I never knew this about her until the election surfaced it. We're listening to the radio. The news is driving us crazy. Just we turn it off and listen to music. You know what I discovered? I discovered that Jean doesn't like the who. not like the who the who comes on the radio in the car and gene says turn that off she's like i've taken her to see them in concert three times and she says well i was just going to because you wanted to go here's the thing she doesn't like the who you know who she did like in high school growing up black sabbath you're telling me that she likes black sabbath but not the who and it took this election for us to figure this out, there's some, I think a lot of married couples are having a lot of conversations about the election results, and this one was a little bit weird. Um, who's on the phone? Jean's on the phone? Hi, Jean. Not fair. <laughs> I imagine we're going to have a conversation tonight. We'll talk about this tonight, but uh, I really don't like the who. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, that was the November election aftermath of 2016. I'm teasing, of course, because Jean is not just my wife. She's my best friend. And last spring, as the pandemic was raging, we thought it would be helpful for you to get some reassuring words from Jean. For decades, she's been writing a column for our client newsletter, and she published her book, The Other Side of Money. Jean focuses on health and wellness and realizes that life isn't all about money. As Jean says, personal finance is more personal than finance. And her segments have proved so popular that she's become a weekly fixture here on The Rick Edelman Show. And here now is Jean with a special message for this weekend. Hi, everyone. Great to be here. My thought for the week is just thank you. Thank you for allowing us to come into your homes and your cars each week. When Rick and I started out 29 years ago on the radio and 36 years ago with our company, we just wanted to share, educate, and help others. That's always been who we are and our mission it's always stayed very clear. I also want to say thank you to all the people that have helped us along the way. And a big shout out to our show's producer, Rick Fowler, who has been by our side all these years. So just thank you. We don't take anything for granted. You know, this is amazing opportunity to be able to help so many people. And so thank you. And we just wish you a beautiful week, beautiful time together as a family. It's the weather's starting to get good. Have a great vacation. Have some good dinners outside, reconnect with friends, but thank you. Just thank you for allowing us to be who we are and share our knowledge with you. Have a great week. That's Gene Edelman, and one of the things that Gene and I feel is important is that our nation stay cutting edge in science and technology, but let's admit it. We don't have enough kids who are interested in studying these new subjects, so Gene and I bought 15,000 telescopes, and we distributed them to elementary schools all around the country 
to help encourage young kids to learn about science. We also funded the Edelman Planetarium and the Edelman Fossil Park, both at Rowan University, for the same reason, so kids can look up at the stars and be engrossed and be bewildered, and also to dig in the dirt, go back 65 million years, find their own fossils with their bare hands, and get to take them home. We also created the Edelman Center for Nursing at the Unova Hospital Center to provide financial advice and career opportunities for nurses, and all nurses nationwide get free financial planning from us here at Edelman Financial Engines. Gene is also on a variety of nonprofit boards, including the Northern Virginia Therapeutic Riding Program, where you can find the Gene Edelman Indoor Riding Arena. They serve children with disabilities and wounded warriors who are recovering from their injuries. It's amazing how horses are so therapeutic, and thanks to the new indoor arena, they can provide services year-round. And, of course, we do a lot for financial literacy. We're working with the Employee Benefit Research Institute, the American Savings Education Council, the Financial Planning Foundation, and our own Funding Our Future Coalition. Gene and I have long recognized that with money comes not just opportunity, but obligation. And so we think it's a really important part of what we do. So it's been 29 years. You know I've done this broadcast while sick on a number of occasions. Some people would say I'm sick on every occasion. But anyway, since I, I, I once had so high a temperature, I was taking my temperature during the show just to relate how my fever was rising and falling like the stock market. When you need financial advice, who do you ask? You'd be amazed where people get their advice. A few years back, I told you about a study from the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. They found that three out of four people, when they need advice about a financial decision, they ask a family member, a friend, or a co-worker. Three out of four. Let me get this straight. Your brother-in-law is as dumb as you. Your co-worker's in a cubicle right next to you. Or was, anyway, before COVID hit. Your neighbor lives in a house or an apartment in the same price range as yours. And these are the people you're going to for financial advice? Uh, you know, here's an idea. Ask a financial planner. Oh, yeah, okay, wait, I, I get it. You don't think you can trust a financial planner. You know that all those folks on Wall Street, they're just salespeople hawking investments and insurance products to earn big, fat commissions. Why on earth would you want to ask them for advice? So you've got no choice but to turn to your brother-in-law, your neighbor, and your co-workers sitting in the next cubicle. Well, here's what so many people don't understand. Yeah, a lot of people in Wall Street, a lot of people in the financial services industry are product-peddling sales reps. But not everybody. All you need to do is talk to a financial advisor who is a fiduciary. That's someone who, by law, legally serves your best interests. A registered investment advisor like us here at Edelman Financial Engines. I mentioned earlier in the show Phyllis Borzy. She was Assistant Secretary at the Department of Labor. She's been on the show many times, and on one of her visits, she talked about the importance of working with an advisor who's a fiduciary. Here's what she said. You know, we had basically two groups of people giving financial advice, the brokers and the insurance agents, and what are called registered investment advisors, like the planners you have at Edelman. They have a legal obligation to act as fiduciaries, to put your interests first and not submerge your interest to the financial interest of the person giving you advice. One way is to look at the marketplace and say, you know what, there are two distinct classes of people who claim that they are going to give you investment advice. One class of those people, the brokers and the insurance agents, is not required by law 
to put your interest at the tip top and held to a fiduciary standard where the recommendation has to be solely in your interest, more than your best interest, but solely in your interest. If you're a person who wants to work in the advice industry, one in which you're really just a salesman, and historically that's brokers and the insurance uh, agents. So you can either be a salesman or you can be somebody who gives trusted, reliable advice. The number one thing I say to investors is do not hire anybody who is not willing to put in writing a commitment to act as a fiduciary and to be legally obligated to act as a fiduciary. That's great advice from Phyllis Borzi, former assistant secretary at the Department of Labor and now member of the board of Edelman Financial Engines. And as we near the end of this special 29th anniversary broadcast, let me give you my 29 top pieces of advice that I've shared with you over the past 29 years. Keep in mind as I go through this list, you should always consult with a financial professional to ensure that this advice is in your best interest. Number one. Get a big, long mortgage, 30 years, not 15. Don't make extra payments. Don't make biweekly payments. Number two, diversify your investments. Number three, buy ETFs and mutual funds, not individual stocks. Number four, maintain a long-term focus with your investment strategy. Number five, rebalance your portfolio periodically. Number six, keep your investment costs low. Number seven, don't buy investments based on their past performance. Number eight, save for college with a 529 savings plan. Number nine, never make an investment decision based on taxes. Number 10, take advantage of dollar cost averaging. Number 11, don't buy a house unless you plan to live in it for at least seven years. Number 12, pay yourself first. Number 13, don't convert your IRA to the Roth. Number 14, don't name minors as beneficiaries. Number 15, never buy investments simply because they're rated five stars. Number 16, hire an independent, fee-based financial advisor who serves as a fiduciary. Number 17, make sure you're saving sufficiently for retirement before you start saving for your kid's college. Number 18, never buy life insurance as an investment. Number 19, don't title assets between generations. Number 20, don't invest solely in bonds when trying to generate income from your investments. Number 21, take the lump sum option from your pension. Number 22, don't bother budgeting. It's a waste of time. Save the amount you need to invest to achieve your goals and then spend the rest of your money however you want. Number 23, ignore the media. Number 24, don't mix politics with your investments. Number 25, maintain at least one year of spending in cash reserves. Number 26, don't lend money to family or friends unless you're willing to lose the money or the relationship. Number 27, pay attention to exponential technologies. Ask if your career is threatened by them and ask if your portfolio is reflective of them. Number 28, be sure you're thinking about whether blockchain and digital assets should be a part of your financial plan. And number 29, 
Be sure to listen every week to The Rick Edelman Show, because as I've been saying since 1992, money doesn't come with instructions. In preparing for this 29th anniversary show, I was looking back at our 25th anniversary four years ago. Back then, four years ago, at our firm, we had 157 financial advisors. We now have 340. Four years ago, we had 17,000 clients. We now have 1.3 million clients. Four years ago, we were managing $19 billion. Today, it's $260 billion. Thank you so much for your support. It's truly an honor to serve you. I'm honored and humbled to be with you here every week. This radio show doesn't happen all by itself. I want to say thank you to Rick Fowler, my producer since day one. I also want to say special thank you to our technician, Dave Kimber, for his many years of service on this broadcast. Janice Ockershausen, very instrumental in my launching The Rick Edelman Show. And to the very many people who have gotten me on the air and for believing in me back when nobody knew what financial planning was and nobody thought listeners would tune in to a show about money. I'm so grateful to our affiliate stations who have taken a leap of faith that I'm not going to destroy a couple of hours of airtime every week and to all the staff here at Edelman Financial Engines involved in the show's weekly production. But most importantly, I want to say thank you to you for listening to and supporting this program. You are the most important in this whole conversation. You're the reason we're all here, and it's with tremendous gratitude and respect that we're here for you, and that we're going to continue to be here for you to offer our advice and service for years to come, to expand our ability to serve you and your financial needs for those of you and your family.